Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Well, welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. I've, uh, it's good to have you back, Riley. Yeah, thanks. I, I took a little bit of a, a hiatus with my family. Went to Mexico for about a week and a half. And during that time, you recorded two awesome episodes with Shiloh Logan. How did that go? It went great. It was great to have Shiloh back on the show. And we were covering one of the Beatitudes, so it was indispensable uh, having Shiloh with us anyway. So that worked out really well. How'd it, it go in Mexico? Mexico was, was good. I mean, um, you know... Whether we like it or not, we're still in this COVID thing, um, at least from a regulatory standpoint. And so that, that was a little on the frustrating side. But other than that, uh, sure. we, we definitely enjoyed the time together as a family. I had my parents there with us. And, you know, it was hot and um, we got tanned up and <laughs> enjoyed the ocean, did some scuba diving and traveling around. It was awesome. So, But it's good right. to be back. I, I'm, I'm a little bit... Uh, Sad that I didn't get to participate in the discussion on the last Beatitude, but you know what? Like you said, it's probably fitting because Shiloh uh, has spent so much time studying the Beatitudes, and I'm, I'm sure he had some awesome insights there. I, I know he did because yes, I listened to that. So. Yes, indeed. And let's see, la- since we last recorded, Shiloh and I were up to see you. Oh, and that's that right. Great too. Yeah. So you guys, you guys came uh, over to the Promised Land here from California, and we had a... Uh, <laughs> We had a mini retreat on one of our favorite historical figures, Al Ghazali. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, one of the one of the great contemplatives in the Islamic tradition. Yeah, we're going to discuss Al Ghazali a little bit. Uh, we, we've done that in the past, but uh, you've you've been reading him lately. I've been reading him lately, and, and I think we've got some pretty cool things to share from our study. Yeah, what are we going to talk about? Well, today. Um, we, we've spent a lot of time in what now? We're up to 30 episodes on this yeah, topic this of is contemplation. 31. Yeah, this is 31, right. Um, and we spent a lot of time on contemplation. And when most people think of that word, they think of thinking <laughs> or, <Yeah>. or pondering <laughs> or meditating. Right. And it's a lot of mental, spiritual exercise. I think most people have a tendency sometimes to separate contemplation from action. When in reality, it's like a left and right hand that work together to accomplish some great work within us. And so today, we posited the possibility of talking about action in respect to contemplation. So we've gathered some thoughts on that, and I think it'll be a great discussion. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of our discussion on the esoteric and the exoteric. Yes. One of my favorites. Same here. So... Well, with that, yeah, let's start with one of our joint favorite quotes and one that kind of came up again in that mini retreat on Al Ghazali. And it says, O disciple, knowledge without action is insanity 
and action without knowledge is vanity. What a great quote. Awesome. And, you know, there's many ways that that's been in, in, uh, translated from the original, but I, I like this proposal you made to have insanity and vanity, which are synonyms of the other words, but nevertheless, they kind of rhyme, so it makes it poetic and it's nice. Yeah, you know, the, the original Arabic reads on the second part that, um, so let's see, it's, what is it, action without knowledge is insanity? Or no, knowledge without action is insanity. So to have the knowledge and not to act on it is just crazy, right? And then the second half says that action without knowledge cannot be, which by the way also rhymes. The original rhymes, so I always look for a translation that rhymes, but, but that which cannot be is vain. To think something is when it isn't is vain. Yeah, I've seen it translated as void as well, which is kind of the same thing. It's lacking in substance, right? So right. vanity is kind of the same thing. Yeah. So where does this, this couplet prompt you to, to go? What, what does it move within you? You know, it's funny because the first thing that occurs to me just about every time I think of it or read it, even though I have a translation or two of it memorized and I can probably even conjure up the Arabic from memory, is sometimes I think it, I think I say sometimes, it, it always seems backwards to me. And, and the way I just explained it, it didn't seem backwards at all, but I think we can take it the other way around too, and that might be interesting. What do you think? Well, I agree, and I think that's a great lead-in to this discussion I want to have about, well, we, it says action and knowledge here, but we're going to call it action and contemplation because the source of knowledge really is, is action and knowledge, action and contemplation, excuse me. So we're going to have this little short discussion about chicken and egg as it relates to action and contemplation. Okay. You said it felt somewhat uncomfortable to do knowledge without action first versus action without knowledge. Why is that? Well, it seems, you know, with this quote, with it saying that knowledge without action is insanity, I thought action without knowledge is insanity. How can you act without any knowledge? And I think that's where you're going with this, right? Yeah, that's right. So let's let's take the example of a small baby, a baby, a child, someone who's not fully conscious or aware of what is the consequence of our natural actions. We we don't know that when we're an infant, and so we're in this very short period of time in respect to the full lifetime where we learn purely experientially. And so in this first few years of our mortal existence here, we're, we're basically experimenting with the world. All the things around us, colors, smells, sights, feelings, all of it is, for the most part, a first-time experience. And it's an experiment. And it's from that experiment that we build what I would call a base of experience. And that base of experience gives us a launch pad to then approach external sources of knowledge through the modality of contemplation. So if that was a little bit too esoteric language, let's put it very simply. If I've learned some things, I can then ask God about other things because I have a little bit of context to work from. And the way our minds work is we tend to relate one experience to another. So that's where metaphor comes from. That's where symbol comes from, is we know that a stove is hot. And so we relate the stove to a really tricky situation morally, and we say we don't want to touch a hot stove, and we understand that that's a metaphor for how we should act. 
And so you take something like a commandment. Uh, let's take the word of wisdom. And we're not supposed to smoke cigarettes. Do you have to smoke a cigarette to know what's wrong? No, I, I don't have to touch a stove to know what's hot either. I, I can see someone else get burnt and learn from that. So sort of this base of experience teaches us that we, it gives us this base that we can then work from to learn greater truths. And that's where I think contemplation comes in. You know, Riley, this, this question about smoking brings up my own experience because it turns out that I started smoking as a teenager. And I think, you know, many do. That's the time that that happens. And the first time you try it, you know right away it's wrong for you. Yeah. It's pretty obvious as you hack away, right? Right. And yet, so, so it's almost that you have to actually be taught. You have to actually learn to put up with it. It's really not good for you. Um, and then, you know, there's something else you said. That we have a quote here. It's very much a part of our tradition, this idea that you mentioned that, that we act on the knowledge that we're given and in thus acting gain further light and truth, further knowledge. And we actually have a quote from Al-Ghazali on that too, don't we? We do. Let me pull that up. because I, I love that. It's, it's a, a great way to explain how action itself can become the mode by which we gain greater knowledge. And so that's, that's the second half of that quote. Yeah, and the book we're pulling from today is from, from Al-Ghazali, is his letter to a disciple. It says, act in accordance with what you know for what you do not know to be unveiled to you. And so it's this progressive learning that's being explained here. If we act in accordance with what we do know, this limited sphere or our base of experience, then by so acting upon that truth, other truths are unveiled to us. So that's more of a unified process of action and contemplation, which I really love. It's a virtuous circle, isn't it? We gain knowledge, we act on it, we gain further knowledge, we act on it, and so on and so forth. There's this scriptural example that sort of relates to this process where, you know, Joseph Smith in Doctrine and Covenants, he's, he's translating. He's in the work of translating, um, as we call it in Mormon vernacular. And in, the, in that process, his scribe is Oliver Cowdery. And, and Oliver is watching this unfold, and he's, he's fascinated. And he understands it to be a gift of God. And it says, you know, right in the Book of Mormon, for, for instance, it says that it was translated by the gift and power of God. And so he sees it in that very literal way as a gift of God. And as anyone who has studied theology, I, I, would, I would hope they understand this, that, that gifts of God can be acquired um, through action, through contemplation, through many ways they can, they can be acquired. There, there may be some that are natural, but there are also some that you can develop. And so, in other words, that you don't have to be born with them, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's the a priori actions, and then there's those that you can acquire through your diligence, I guess. Right. Or asking. Or asking. Sure. You bet. But there can be a problem with just asking, right? Sometimes, right. not all and the time. That's the point of the story. Right. So in this story, Oliver sees him doing this, and he's like, yeah, you know, I want this gift. And Joseph treats this as a positive. You know, he's, he's not possessive about the gifts of God. He says, yeah, you should absolutely pursue that. So go ahead and give it a try. Don't you love that? I do. I love that. And, and that's a discussion I want to continue on as we get 
closer to the end of this is what keeps us from acting. And so we'll get into that a little bit. But okay. I, I love Joseph's attitude here. He, he, he takes his scribe, whom, who a lot of people would think, okay, well, he's his subordinate. He's there just to write things down. It's not his role to, to be the revelator here. So, but Joseph doesn't see it that way. And, and we can take a much larger lesson from this when it comes to all gifts of God that they're for everyone. Even the, the, the great gift of prophecy itself, which some might say, well, that's reserved for prophets, capitalized prophets. But nevertheless, Joseph doesn't see it that way. He's like, yeah, you should, you should attain to this gift. You should desire it and seek after it and really work for it. That's great. Go ahead. Do it. Well, what does Oliver do? Oliver sets out to get this gift. And the first thing that he thinks to do is just ask God for the gift. And so sure. he prays for it and asks for it. And when he actually tries to do it, he has a stupor of thought. And he's like, oh, crud, this isn't working out. And he goes back to Joseph in, in this state of frustration. He's like, it's just not working. You know, how come? Why won't God give me this gift he, that he's given to you? I mean, aren't these, aren't these available to everyone? And this revelation uh, for Oliver is given to Joseph Smith, wherein it says um, that Oliver took no thought but to ask. So he didn't put anything into it except basically a prayer, just asking for the gift to be handed to him. And, you know, this is a scripture that's well known, and there's been many a Sunday school class that's been spent talking about how you can't just uh, do nothing in this process and expect God to give you everything. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of truth to that, and, and that's essentially why I've brought it up. There's also, you know, the possibility that ask and you shall receive. But the process here, and I, I think one that's probably more fruitful long-term and more applicable to every situation, is that if you expend effort towards a goal that you seek or a gift that you seek, the likelihood of achieving it or receiving it is magnified. Absolutely. You know, Riley, this, this story reminds me of another quote from Al-Ghazali's letter to a disciple. He says, it is though man in the desert had ten Indian swords and other weapons besides the man being brave and a warrior and a huge terrifying lion attacked him. What is your opinion? Will the weapons repel this danger of his from him without their being used and being wielded? It is obvious they will not repel it unless drawn and wielded. So Oliver doesn't even pick up the pen and try. Right. Just, yeah. He's just, he's just got this stupor of thought and he thinks, well, that's it. I, I suck at this. And there's more to it. Like part of, part of this process is failure. Or at least an attempt, making an attempt, right? Yeah. Obviously, you, you can't even have a failure unless you try. <laughs> right, right. You know, I've been teaching languages for many years, Riley. And what I've noticed is in teaching languages is that there are certain mistakes that every language learner has to make. I call them stepping stones. Once a student reaches each of these stepping stones, each of these mistakes, I say, awesome. You just made it to this mistake. This is the, everybody has to go through this mistake to move forward. And so you have to actually try and be willing to make a mistake to move forward. Yeah, I love that. Uh, you've brought this into the conversation because I, I really relate to it. 
And specifically, I relate to the mistakes made when you're first learning a language and you're trying to speak it to someone who is a native speaker. And, and there's just this fear of judgment and looking stupid when in reality, it's an unfounded fear for the most part. Yeah. When, when, when you as a native English speaker hear someone who is a native, let's say, French speaker trying to speak English and they're really fumbling through it, but you know it's their, their second language or their, perhaps <laughs> their third or fourth language, are you like, man, this guy's an idiot? No. Yeah. <laughs> who does that? Right. Right? I mean, you basically it's... give them all the grace and time that they need to finish their thought. And your work in this dialogue is to try to cobble out of their pidgin English or whatever exactly what they're trying to convey. That's your work. Right. And I think most yeah, people you are know, the same. It really is an unfounded fear, but it's a real one. It is. I, I myself suffer from perfectionism, and so I'm always afraid to open my mouth. And I tell my students, do as I say, not as I do, because I always say, he who likens himself most unto a parrot will learn the fastest. Right? You just have to say the things. Don't worry about whether you got it right or wrong because you actually perfect your pronunciation by practicing it. Yeah, if you never vocalize it, you'll be a terrible speaker. And that's just the straight-up honesty. People do not expect perfection in grammar. They don't expect perfection in pr pronunciation or sentence construction or anything of that. If you, can, if you can cobble together a few verbs and nouns in something that's even remotely understandable for a native speaker, they'll get it. This whole conversation reminds me of a quote I once saw at a restaurant. I think it was a Colombian restaurant. And on the wall was written in Spanish, El que cree en la perfección es un perfecto idiota. He who believes in perfection is a perfect idiot. <laughs> See, and I'm not a great Spanish speaker, but listening to you speak that, I know there was like six words in there that I understood very well. And so I understood the, the gist of the thought. And the same yeah. goes for someone who speaks broken English to us. We, we understand what they're trying to get at. And, you know, yeah, that's good enough. I love, how this, I love how this conversation is going because it shows you, too, a lot of times we're afraid that we, that we won't get it. So that's another fear, right? That, that as we act on this knowledge, I don't know, maybe the knowledge that comes won't be understood to us. But we really can understand more than we think we can and we can receive more than we think we can in, in a communication even from God than we than we think we can. And when we have that fear, in language learning we call it an effective barrier goes up. And with that with that effective barrier up, we actually can't understand as well as if we would just relax and trust that we can understand, that we really can. And so we I think we have to approach God in that way. Well, I love that. I mean, if we thought of God in the same way we think of a person we're talking to of, that has a different native language to us, and we start spouting this somewhat coherent but broken language, what typically happens with that other person that is, you know, trying to suffer along with us and figure out what we're trying to mean in, in what we say is that they typically will fill in the gaps for us. I mean, I do this, right? So someone's speaking to me in broken English and they say the wrong word. I'm like, and I replace it with the right word. Guess what happens to the person who spoke the wrong word? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, now they've internalized the right word and they'll use that in future conversations. And I think God works in 
a similar manner, when we come to him with our, in, our incomplete experience, he can say to us, well, you know, there's more to that story and here you go. But, you know, you wouldn't know that unless you had gone and tried it and gained some and level not, of experience. Yeah, and who's better at this than God? And he's not going to upbraid us if we ask him, as, as was written in, in James. Yeah. So, you know, I, I wrote down on my notes here this phrase used by President Nelson in last conference, lazy learners. Ooh. What does that mean to you? Well, for me, I'll tell you what it means. And, and then I want to hear your thoughts, too. So lazy learners or lazy learning, as describing the process, is, is just expecting things to happen for you without expending the effort. And it doesn't mean perfection. And it doesn't even mean striving for perfection. It means just trying, to me. It's putting forth some effort and being willing to fail a few times for the sake of greater experience and discovery. Yeah, the scriptures teach us that if we make an effort in God's direction, that he comes running and closes the distance. Yeah, what, which parable is that? You know, with the parable of the, of the prodigal son, it's, it's the father representing God who comes running down the path towards us right. and meets us halfway. So I love that. And really, this is, the, this is critical to the science of personal revelation. The willingness and ability to step forward out of whatever comfort zone you're in and try something. To experiment upon the word, to experiment upon an action, knowing that there's some light out there that you haven't yet grasped. What keeps us from doing that stuff? Well, there's fear. We've talked about fear. And fear is the opposite of love. By the way, for those, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't always think that. I didn't always realize that. You know, I used to think the opposite of love was hate. And then I'm ashamed to say I hated someone. And that took just as much passion as love, you know? And so that was a lesson to me. And then I thought, okay, so it's indifference. And then I realized, no, it's not indifference. And then I finally came to the conclusion that the opposite of love is fear. And so we have to be willing to open ourselves up and be vulnerable to loving and to receiving love. And we can trust God. And we can trust our fellow man. Sure, with our fellow man, we may get hurt, but it is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And with God, he's not going to break our heart. Not in, not in this way of speaking, right? He may, uh, he, he may have to uh, break through the hardness of our heart, right, to, to get to the soft core of it. But that's not going to hurt. That's going to, be, that's going to be soothing to our souls. So let me, let me branch off this. Well, first of all, I want to say that a corollary to that fear, and maybe it's the same thing, is pride. Hmm, pride. Because when we act, when we fail to act because of pride, we're doing so because we're scared of judgment or looking foolish or tarnishing our current reputation. And that keeps us from acting in truth and striving to learn and be more. 
And so I think that's really a fear. Yeah, it could be the same thing. I think it's the same thing. Yeah. But it might be helpful to talk about it in terms of pride separately, right? Even if it does boil down to fear. I think so. It's another, it's another aspect. Sometimes when it comes, when we think about acting and contemplating God's love and not actually acting on it and sharing that love with others, that love that we feel in contemplating God's love, we might, we might have to let go of our pride to, to open ourselves up to love, to the love of God, to receiving it, and to the love of God that we might share. Because when we're filled with that love, it's going to flow forth from us unto others, unless, again, we're damned by pride. Yeah, pride will teach us to, or instruct us to, um, hold on to that which think, that we think defines us. And it's in the letting go of that that we're truly opened up to growth. And, yeah, you know, sometimes we grow line upon line upon line, and it's, it's, it's growth in the same category. But other times, without completely removing an aspect of what we thought we've become, you can't grow beyond it. So there's different forms of growth. You can't become a new creature. Right. So there you go. That's great language for it. And you know, this whole letting go of pride idea really goes back to that first beatitude, right? Of being poor in spirit, of emptying ourselves of false identities. That's right. That thing that that you mentioned that we hold on to, that we think identifies us, that defines us. And and I think there's ways to grow again linear within a certain uh, category. Category is not really the word I'm looking for. Um, nevertheless, it's it's along a certain track. So, for instance, you go to college, and you start off with an introduction to philosophy, and you you go from there, and you keep going, you keep going, you keep going, and and eventually you're a PhD. That's all within one track. But sometimes in order oh. to grow, you've got to drop that, that track and go learn some other category or subject in order to really progress. It's not that necessarily you've learned everything there is to know, but maybe it's taken you as far as you want to be taken in that, in that subject. Absolutely right. I can give my personal testimony. I spent, what, several years in college studying for a degree in philosophy seven more teaching philosophy, and I just, I went really far with that in terms of that rational side of things, right? This, this rational side of things. And I just felt like I got to a point where it really was, it was damning, right? It, it damned me in some sense. I was, I was unable to progress further, and I had, to op- I had to be willing to open myself up to the opposite side of this rational side of things, which is the mystical side, which is what we're here talking about. That's what landed me here on this podcast, is this hyper-rationalism was closing me off to a whole other part of what it means to be human, what it means to be connected to the divine. Because, as one of my friends in grad school put it, God doesn't fit into your logic, Chris. And, by the way, there's more than one logic. And I couldn't understand that at the time. I was so hyper-rational. And now I've come to a place where I'm accused of, um, of contradictions, right? Or of 
irrationality. Yeah. Yeah, embracing and contradiction. Okay yeah, it's tough. See, you were, if, if I can kind of paraphrase what you're saying, you were the, the subject that is described by Al-Ghazali when he says knowledge without action is insanity. So you were piling up all this knowledge in your category. And I'm not saying you didn't do anything with it, but... It, it, well, I taught it mostly. Yeah, you taught it. Um, taught other people what you had already been taught. It, that in, in itself is a circle. Yeah, it's interesting because I really tried to teach philosophy as a way of life. And yet, I, in many ways, I ended up doing what was done after philosophy stopped being a, a way of life in the Middle Ages. And philosophy just becomes something that you teach other philosophers to teach other philosophers. Right. And, and the, the medieval or the, the classical philosophers would abhor that line of thinking, right? It, it, for them, it was so that they could learn how to live or learn how to die. It was a way of life. Right. The classical philosophers, yeah. So, so this points me back to Al-Ghazali again in this quote that says, even if you've studied for a hundred years and collected a thousand books, you would not be eligible for the mercy of God the exalted except through action. Man does not receive other than that for which he strives. So let him who hopes for the meeting with his Lord act righteously. And so it's really, if, if you take yourself as the example, and you know you spend all these years studying and teaching philosophy, to what end, right? You, you can collect in your mind and in your experience hundreds and thousands of books, but you would not be eligible for the quote-unquote mercy of God, the exalted, except through action. So it's when you start putting all those things you've learned into action that contemplating and learning all of these things really starts to gain its potency and transformative power. And that's really what we are pointing at in this discussion, is that contemplation by itself, or aggregating higher and higher levels of knowledge by itself, lacks any potency or transformative power for the individual and those around him that would normally be impacted by those enhanced actions. So a contemplative in action, someone who's combined both contemplation and action, is an action-oriented individual who takes the time to consider the appropriate course of action based on external inputs, based on their base of experience, as I discussed earlier. And in short, they possess the precursor to appropriate actions, which is intent and consideration. They've learned how to marry what came out of their contemplation and their study and their pondering and meditation with an intention and an action that resulted from whatever it is that they've learned or gained from that contemplation. So they've, they've put them both together, and that's so important. Yeah, and this is exactly why I thought of Al-Ghazali when you told me you wanted to talk about knowledge in action or contemplation in action, because this was the focus of his life's work, and especially in this book, the, well, this letter to a disciple that, that has been published in book form, we can see, as a matter of fact, I have one more quote to share from that book. He says, if you read or study knowledge, your knowledge must improve your heart and purge your ego, just as if you learned that your life would only last another week. Inevitably, you would not spend it in learning about law, ethics, jurisprudence, scholastic theology, and such like, because you would know that these sciences would be inadequate for you. Instead, you would occupy yourself with inspecting your heart, discerning the features of your personality, giving worldly attachments a wide berth, 
purging yourself of ugly traits, and you would occupy yourself in adoring God the Exalted, worshipping Him, and acquiring good qualities. And since we don't know when we're going to die, what Al-Ghazali wrote applies to all of us, now and every day. So spend your time doing the things that matter the most. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because I've heard others, you know, I I had a Sufi friend, um, I've read the likes of Augustine, and I've seen this over and over in so many who have actually read a lot of books, as I myself have, and they came to the realization that it's not in books. And I always say, well, that's easy for you to say because you've read all the books. Because I'm one of these guys, going back to your, your analogy of the child that has to learn things. I don't, I don't think you mentioned the idea of touching the hot stove. You know, some people learn not to touch the hot stove by example. Some have to learn, you know, by, by actually touching the hot stove themselves. And so I've done all the reading and I'm coming to that point of realization that it's not in books. You know, I'm not at the point of Marcus Aurelius of saying, throw away all your books. But I'm starting to realize that it's not in books. I still find value in, in the pointing that they can do and pointing it at what is the thing, since they're not the thing themselves. And neither is this, by the way. What we're trying to do here is to point to something that isn't this. It's something beyond this. It's something beyond words. It's ineffable. And that's an experience of God. And so in some sense, anything we do in podcasting on contemplation is ironic because we're not here leading a contemplative exercise, but we are mentioning contemplative exercises and we are mentioning where they lead and what their point is. And in this episode in particular, marrying the contemplative with the active. Well, at great risk of comparing either of us to the Savior, a lot of times this is what Jesus did. He would, he would point the way, and he would do it, but ultimately it was up to the individual to follow that and do it. And, you know, in this case, where we, where we kind of diverge from the Savior, obviously, is that we're not always doing this ourselves. We're, we're, we're learning through this process, and sometimes talking through it is a way to prompt yourself to do it. It's almost expressing the verbal intent to go and do the thing that you want to do, that you know is right. Sometimes you have to verbalize it first. So in no respect are we on that level. But I think that the example of the Savior is instructive in that he had a way of of not only spending time in meditation or prayer to God in silence, sometimes for days or, or even weeks on end in the case of his 40-day fast, but he also took action, direct action, that resulted from the things that he had learned from God, and vice versa. Sometimes he would take his frustration, sadness, and sorrow to God. Why hast thou forsaken me? That type of thing. He's not doing that to express some anger at God, but to learn. Indeed. And so he, he was like the perfect example of marrying contemplation and action. As I mentioned when I first came on the podcast to take Shiloh's place at his request, I know that Shiloh asked me to do this because he knows I need this. I know that he loves me, and that's why he asked me to do this. And I'm so grateful for this opportunity to be in this conversation with you, Riley, and with our listeners to 
to consider, to contemplate that which we must contemplate and that which we must act on, such that we might grow spiritually. And I've been convicted many times in, in these conversations, and I've been inspired many times. And I know that others have too, because they've told us. And so I hope that this is useful for all of us. And in that same spirit, I, I want our listeners to know that they're a part of this process, not only for us, but for them and other listeners. We invite comments, we invite feedback, uh, show ideas. We really want to hear from listeners and know what it is you want to hear about. What were your experiences as a result of listening to an episode? Um, if there was something that inspired you, you during one of our episodes and you took action as a result of it, we'd love to hear about that. So you can leave those comments as reviews on our podcast on Apple the iTunes podcast uh, app you can you leave a, a review or a comment on our YouTube channel when a new episode gets posted and w- then there's the Facebook route where you can find us on Latter-day Peace Studies page there there's a few ways to get back at us but we we would invite that kind of feedback knowing full well that we haven't arrived and you know, in the spirit of another person who's exa- who's an example to us, and particularly for you, Chris, Malcolm X had this way of being willing to switch gears at a moment's notice if he if he noticed something was off with himself, right? So his action was very geared and directed towards truth. Absolutely. You know, before I mention Malcolm X and my ideas about Malcolm X or my my relationship with Malcolm X, because he's a personal hero to me. One of the things, I think you mentioned this to me, Riley, about YouTube, is that you can actually not only comment on the podcast in general, but on particular episodes. There can be an actual conversation. Absolutely. In which multiple people can participate at the same time, including us, right? That's right. I've responded to several comments made on the YouTube um, comment boards for various episodes. I, I try to keep an eye on that because I invite the feedback and I want it, even if it's negative. So more than happy to respond and have a dialogue with anyone. It might be easier in a social media setting like Facebook to do that. Sure. But nevertheless, however it is you want to connect with us, we would invite that uh, that feedback. Yeah, so as I mentioned, Malcolm X is a personal hero to me, and he would think on a, on a peace studies podcast that you'd be more likely to hear about Martin Luther King, his counterpart in the civil rights movement. And yet Malcolm X has not been he's not been well understood. Uh, his, he was not violent. Of course, he had a violent career as a criminal, but once he was reformed and converted and uh, became, a man of, became a man of God, he was no longer violent. His rhetoric was at times, and as a matter of fact, he sat next to Dr. King's wife when Dr. King was in jail in Birmingham, and he said to her privately, he said, if they don't listen to your husband, then they might hear from me, because he had this violent rhetoric of we don't claim to be nonviolent. Although he wasn't violent, he didn't claim that he wouldn't be. He taught that people had the right to defend themselves, which a lot of people identify with, and is a little bit different message from, uh, well, it's the opposite message of what Dr. King and, and Jesus himself taught. And yet he's a shining example in so many ways, and, and you bring up a good point, Riley, and that is that Malcolm X acted on whatever it was that he believed was true whether it was true or not, if he thought it was true, he acted on it, and he, and he really gave it heart and soul. And at the same time, when, when it comes to pride, um, he was willing to turn on a dime. If he learned something, if he learned today, 
that what he thought was true yesterday was not true, and now he knows something else, he would act on what he knew, and again, heart and soul. And so he, he, he went through, there's at least three Malcolm X, right? I mentioned the criminal Malcolm X, the one who converted to the nation of Islam, and then when he, when he becomes an Orthodox Muslim and embraces all of those who would take up his cause, whereas before he rejected anyone who weren't um, black, right? Only, you had to be an African-American to, to contribute anything to his cause. He actually turned down uh, a young lady who wanted to contribute in any way and he said, there's nothing you can do. And, and so he went through this, again, as he learned his trip to Mecca, his, his Hajj, really converted him again. And so that's, he's just always been such an example to me because he's a, he's a man of action who is not afraid to admit that he's wrong and to continue to act according to the truth that he has received. If you were to take the name Malcolm X out, everything you described to me sounds like St. Paul. It sounds like someone who's sure. willing to, at the at the drop of a hat, if new truth is revealed to him, go that course, um, and just you know his pride be damned. Like put that to the yeah, side. Yeah, get that. And yeah, uh, good point. In in the same way, he would debase himself publicly. Um, and, and maybe Joseph Smith was kind of the same way in certain respects. You know, he was willing to be publicly flogged, um, metaphorically or literally. For for the glory of of gaining some greater knowledge or experience, yeah, or or just to please God, you know, out of, out of humility and devotion. So, yeah, I, he's a complicated figure for sure. But um, that's something that's very laudable about Malcolm X and and Paul is is their willingness to put their pride aside for what they believe is the appropriate course of action. I I hundred percent think Paul was just as devoted as a Pharisee when he was in the process of assenting to the, the stoning of Stephen as he was as the great apostle of, of Jesus traveling through, you know, Asia Minor and, and Southern Europe or whatever. I, I totally believe that he was just as devoted to both, and that was his strength. Yeah, I get that. You know, that reminds me of a, a story that I won't read as a quote from the letter to a disciple of Al-Ghazali, and that's this this idea that there's this, when you mentioned Joseph Smith being willing to submit because just to please God, right? Because it's God's will or what have you. There's a story of a, a man who is, has dedicated himself to God and I think an angel is sent and it says, you know, to him that he will not actually gain paradise. And he says, well, that's okay. And he just continues to worship because that's, that's what it's, he's supposed to do, right? That's his job is to worship God. And when the angel reports this back to God, saying, of course, God, you already know what he said, then he admits him to paradise. That, that's a cool story, because it's almost like he's willing to expand the borders to accommodate us if our intention is right. Yes, indeed, he looks on the intent of our hearts. And that's why, that's why acting, even if we're not sure of ourselves, that's why it counts in God's eyes, because it's our intention that counts. He's looking on our hearts, on the intents of our hearts, and if our intention is right, and if our intention is to be obedient, to please him, to draw close to him, again, he's going to come running to us. So, pre-show, we kind of had this um, dialogue about acting without uh, knowledge or, or without really considering what the circumstances or the consequences might be and how that can be a negative. 
And, you know, regardless of intent, I mean, for instance, you know, someone hurls an insult at you and you send 25 missiles towards them or something, right? I mean, that, that's stupid. You might think that it's an appropriate response, but you haven't considered it enough. And so there's, there's a way to do that right, isn't there? That, that's, I guess, more considerate, acting in smaller steps, perhaps. Now, is this something from the news? You know, I have no access to news. It no, 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 like no, no. It's not news. No, <laughs> no it, it probably it probably has happened. I don't know. But, it probably has, yeah. But nevertheless, no, what I'm getting at is that, you know, you had mentioned that acting, even if it's wrong, as long as the intent is good, it's, it's usually kind of sanctified to our, to, our, to our betterment, I guess, right? But there, there's a way to do that to kind of minimize some of the negative consequences if, if your actions are a little bit ill-considered, if you haven't really spent the time. Yeah, well, I think the answer is in, in marrying knowledge and, and, and action, in marrying contemplation and action. So I don't think that, that we should act without any contemplation any more than we should contemplate without any action. And so I think that's the point of this episode, right, is to bring the two together. And so, obviously, if, we're, if we have a, a righteous intent, if we have a right intent, you know, to be just, to be in a right relationship with God and with our fellow man, and we act on that, and at the same time we're seeking, because I can think that in my heart and be wrong, right? But if I'm seeking confirmation from God, if I'm in communication with God, if I'm asking, he says, ask and you shall receive, right? So I'm going to receive an answer if I ask in faith. And he's not going to upbraid me, right? Ask and and, and you won't be upbraided either. So I think that's the answer, is to bring the two together. Yeah, and I think that kind of asking is entirely appropriate as opposed to what perhaps Oliver Cowdery did when he just flat out asked right. for a gift. If yes, you're asking for exactly. direction, that's essentially saying, I'm going to act on this. And it's still going to be up to me to exercise faith in that direction, but I sure would appreciate the direction. Absolutely. Well, Chris, I, that's about all that I've got that I wanted to discuss. Did you have any last thoughts? You know, I was thinking in terms of closing too at this point, and so I think we're on the same wavelength, and I guess the only thing I'll say is I think this covers the idea. We haven't said this. This is something we talked about when planning the episode, when, when talking about what we're going to talk about, right? And that is that there's this idea that contemplation is about navel-gazing. And so I think we've covered that, right? We've covered this idea of contemplation as navel-gazing. What we're talking about here is marrying knowledge and action or contemplation and action. And, and, and it shows the purpose, right? This, this shows the purpose of contemplation. It's not contemplation for contemplation's sake, but for the sake of God. So what about this? How, how about we close with just a short prayer that I'll vocalize that hopefully marries the idea of intent to act with a desire for direction from Heavenly Father. All right. God, make us an instrument in thy hands. Help us to know thy will and to give us the confidence to pursue it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. Well, thanks for joining us again, folks, for Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. 
And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week.